Audio Conversation, recorded March 11th, 2011. I met Nick Redfern very briefly at a UFO conference in 2007. It was in Las Vegas. And uh, it's interesting, I, and I, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but um, uh, I'll, I will quote Mac Tonys, who said that when meeting Nick, he comes across initially as sort of a soccer hooligan. Uh, and... Um, that seems fair enough, but uh, behind that exterior is a very intense and thoughtful and open-minded researcher. Uh, Nick's ability to look at the bigger picture is is something that is sorely lacking, and his voice is um, very much appreciated by me. I, I feel like he's shaped some of the ways I frame these experiences, uh, my personal experiences, as well as uh, the overall grand set of experiences that shows up in the literature and and when you talk to other people who claim anomalous events in their in their lives and calling nick a prolific author is a little bit of an understatement i'm going to uh, list some books here and i think there's more out there that i couldn't find here we go on the trail of the saucer spies strange secrets science fiction secrets celebrity secrets body snatchers in the desert a Covert Agenda, the British Government's UFO's Top Secrets Exposed. There's Something in the Woods. Three Men Seeking Monsters. Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. Man Monkey in Search of the British Bigfoot. Contactees. Final Events. NASA Conspiracies. And the soon-to-be, on the shelves, The Real Men in Black. Uh, whew, that's a long list. I Hey, I'm going to also add that I did a what I consider a really great interview on the book Final Events, which came out uh, late last year. That's also on this site. And um, I have to say this, I take no credit for the soccer hooligan line. That was all Mac Tonys, ever the skillful user of the English language. Okay, enough of that. Uh, when I asked Nick to do the interview, uh, I didn't really have much that I wanted to discuss. I didn't really have any agenda. A few rough things, mostly talking about the ETH and synchronicities. Uh, then we just wandered all over the map after that. Uh, I will say that um, he very much played a role in shaping my ideas and shaping some of the vocabulary I use when I try to make sense of, of these disparate and very strange experiences. I got a ton out of the conversation, and um, I hope you do too. Please enjoy. Hello? Good morning, Nick. This is Mike Cleland. Oh, hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Hey, Nick, I just want to say thanks so much for saying yes to this interview. Sure, no problem at all. Happy to be on the show, Mike. Great, great. The, the theme I want to look into is is less about any singular book of yours and more just a, or sort of an overall collective of your work in the sense is what you're seeing now as an overall mm. uh, mysterious phenomena. Uh, it seems with the UFO mystery that paranormal events beyond what we would expect from the ETH mm. seems to be unfolding. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think, you know, there's, I think there's two ways that people kind of go within the UFO field from the time they first get in it, which is often like at a very young age, through the, you know, the natural course of their research and, and writing career, etc. And I think most people, it's probably not exclusively all people who first become interested in UFOs, go down the path 
of the ETH. There's no doubt about that. I think because when you're sort of 12, 13, whatever, you know, the age a lot of people get into it, things are pretty much quite black and white, you know, and you you have this imagery that UFO means alien spacecraft. And I think what happens is that usually one of two things. I'm not, I'm, I you know, hope I'm not overgeneralizing, but I think it is usually one of two things. You get people who rigidly stick to that particular theory and become sort of big-time players, you know, who fly the flag of that for 40, 50, 60 years, you know, and, and literally. Um, and then I think there are other people like me and maybe Greg Bishop um, who also get into the subject from that background, but they get then over time begin to realize that the whole UFO phenomenon isn't just weird. It's almost too weird for it to be something, ironically, just just aliens. You know, I think, uh, for me at least, when you realize that there are these sort of crossover areas that a lot of people in ufology don't like to deal with, they don't feel comfortable and, um, you know, sort of able to deal with some of the issues that where you have parallels with other phenomena. And my view is that, you know, to try and rigidly conform all of this into one particular area and deny the reality of the high strangeness cases is just stupid. You know, I just don't get it why there's a need on the part of a lot of people, seemingly, to uphold the ETH. I mean, for me, whatever the answer is, if it still points in the direction of a genuine, really anomalous UFO phenomenon, what the hell does it matter if it comes from this star system or somewhere else? I've never understood that, um, and I don't understand other than, you know, maybe it's the lure of dollars and, you know, a regular place on the lecture circuit. That's the only thing I can really think of that, you know, makes people keep promoting the ETH. Or it is just a sincere belief in that theory, which I think holds as well. However, if you have a sincere belief in that theory, no one can tell me that these people aren't aware of the high strangeness cases, and if they are, we'll dig into them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's very interesting. I've spoken directly with Bud Hopkins uh, on multiple occasions and sat with him, and he even uh, attempted a hypnosis session with me at one point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very interesting. He has a public face, and, and you talk, you know, you read his books, and, and he presents, uh, you know, one case. And then when you talk to him personally, he'll uh, share these high strangeness cases that he has. And the way he presents them is, uh, you know, he actually, I asked him about it personally, and I, and I was videotaping some of these interviews at the time, and he made a, um, like a gesture, almost like a, like a, if you spilled water on the table and the, ta- and the water splashed everywhere. So he did made this hand gesture as he was talking. And he said, you know, um, as I write about this thing, this was Bud talking, he said, as I write about these topics, these threads go everywhere. And he made this hand gesture, like, you know, stuff just going everywhere. And then he yeah. made a follow-up hand gesture where he, he tried to pull it all back in. Um, and he said, you know, what, what I do when I write is try to confine these things and, and so he's very well aware of that, that he does that. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and I think maybe that was something that, I don't know, just, just happened normally, you know, in the in the sort of dawn of certain, I mean, he was, you know, at the at the forefront of what would be, uh, you know, UFO abduction research. And, uh, and I think he just didn't want to mess his data up in a way because he was presenting it and he was already in enough hot water the way he was presenting it. I will say to, you know, in his defense, he did write a book called Sight Unseen. Uh, have you read that book? 
No, I haven't. No. Where he where he includes a lot of the uh, outlying cases, and and those stories are extremely bizarre. You know, he's often used as a as a sort of whipping boy for the ETH, but at the same time, you know, he does write what may be his final UFO book. Um, mm-hmm is a uh, a collection of of stories of you know complete high strangeness and uh... yeah no i think i mean i think a lot of researchers you know there's absolutely no doubt that of who hold to the eth do have in their files you know a lot of cases that don't necessarily point in that direction you know i don't think it's um a situation where they're not receiving the reports i think you know there's no reason why they wouldn't it's whether or not people who are rigidly conforming to the ETH actually, um, you know, they actually embrace these reports or they just think, well, this doesn't fit in this particular area, so, you know, let's relegate it to the filing cabinet. Um, you know, as I said, I, 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 I just don't understand the logic of why, why uphold the ETH, even if the other data still points in the direction of something anomalous. You know, I just don't understand why it's important that whatever's going on is coming from this star system or that star system rather than some other, you know, um, say more esoteric point of origin. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like... Uh, I mean, I mean, a lot of it, I, th- I think, is just honestly down to the fact that people do believe that's what's going on. But I still think it's... Um, you know, it's a tragedy and a mistake not to look at the other data and just suggest, well, you know, maybe I should be looking into these areas. You know, I shouldn't just be focusing on that. And I think that's that's where I have criticisms with certain players in the ufological field. You know, not that they have come to a conclusion that it's aliens, but that they, to a great extent, just won't deal with, with this other stuff. I mean... I forget who it was now, but I spoke to somebody at a conference about probably two or three years ago um, about this very issue, and we got on to people like John Keel, and the person just said something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, Keel was just some sort of speculative nut, so I'm not even going to look at his data. You know, and it's like, to me, that's just idiotic. You know, it's like having a personal opinion on someone is going to colour your views on even looking at his entire body of data or even part of it where you might actually learn something more that actually kind of influences your future beliefs and trends um you know it's it's one of these things where it's it's just like don't bother me with that stuff you know i just don't want to know about anything to do that sort of parallels you know brings a whole range of different 40 and stuff into the mix rather than just nuts and bolts scientists coming from some other world or whatever yeah, and one example I have of this is the um, having talked to a lot of people directly, and, and it's very interesting since I've started uh, this little website, you know, sort of writing about my own set of experiences, and then what, what's been happening, which I did not expect uh, when I went into the process of you know, creating this, is that people have been contacting me, and I've, I've mm-hmm. spoken to a lot of people now, and I just you know, straight up say, like, oh, give me a phone call, and um, rather than try to go back and forth on email, and, uh, you know, folks with similar experiences to mine are, you know, arriving at my site and, and finding me, but one of the things that's, that I hear in a, in a way that you would never know if you just looked at the mainstream literature is people say they start channeling once they've had some sort of contact experience, whether that's like a, you know, a profound abduction experience or some sort of more ethereal 
sort of contact experience, they say they begin channeling. And obviously the, the actual data that comes out from channeling, uh, you know, the actual claims of the channeler are, are, are obviously suspect and dubious. And, and at the same time, I've, I've had some profoundly interesting experiences mm. from channeled experience, but, uh, that is just dismissed with outright contempt mm. when you bring that oh, up yeah. to people. You know, they'll just roll their eyes and say, well, I'm not going to go down that road. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I've actually experienced this personally as well, where people have contacted me, you know, and they feel they're in touch with sort of higher entities and things like this. I think why mainstream ufologists dismiss this is because they actually have quite a simplistic approach to the subject, and particularly today, people don't necessarily look deeply into the history of phenomena like this. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. When anybody brings up the issue of channeling and higher beings, I, what I've found is that there's a tendency for people, particularly in the ETH camp, to lump all this in with the contactee movement. And many of them have a simplistic view on the contactee movement that these people were all liars. And so if they start embracing, you know, um, stories relative to contact and channeling, you know, this research or that researcher is by default endorsing, you know, what they view as dubious tales from the 1950s about people meeting long-haired aliens from Venus. The problem is, I think, with a lot of people who do support the ETH, they don't look at the bigger picture of the extensive history of channeling. You know, never mind the 1950s and contactees or whatever, but, you know, you go back into history and you find accounts of, of people, everyday people, whose lives are radically changed by some event, and then they start interacting in some fashion with higher entities. Now, you know, the big question is, what are these entities? Are they being realistic? Are they being honest? Are they being deceptive? Are they manipulative? I think all these questions come into play. Um, and, you know, are we dealing with a phenomenon that's actually somehow modifies itself over time, you know, to suit the belief systems of, of the relevant people? I think these are all highly important questions, but I think the reason they're not as I said, treated well or even judged at all primarily by mainstream ufology is because mainstream ufology hasn't really, to a great extent, you know, people like Valet aside and people like that, hasn't really dug into what channeling means. You know, it's just people think of it as, oh, you know, this freaky person downloads information into their mind from somebody who's come from, says he comes from Mars, you know, that sort of thing. And it's such a simplistic approach and a simplistic dismissal rather than looking at the deeper history of the phenomenon and actually, you know, learning something about it even. Hey, in your in your set of research, have you ever, uh, I guess, taken on the role of abduction researcher? Um, not so much. I wouldn't say re abduction researcher, um, but, I mean, I've investigated and spoke with a lot of abductees who've, you know, related their accounts to me. I mean, what I've tried to do is pass them on to people who I feel can offer some help. Now, I mean, I'll give you an example, um, which, again, takes things away from the mainstream. Um, I interviewed a guy probably about five years ago now who'd had abduction experiences, but they were also associated with 
like a spin-off thing, what was going on. He was actually experiencing poltergeist activity in the house. Now, you know, I mean, somebody might say, well, perhaps there's some sort of aspect of alien technology that leaves some sort of residual energy that provokes, <coughs> excuse me, provokes, um, you know, poltergeist activity. However, you know, it, it's, to me, that's a simplistic approach. My view is that if you've got poltergeist activity in line with abduction-type experiences in the same location, to me, that's suggestive we're not dealing with something that's quite literally extraterrestrial. We're dealing with a, an ancient phenomenon that's been around for a long time because we know poltergeist activity has been reported for a very long time. And, uh, you know, I actually referred the person to somebody outside of the, um, like the rigid UFO community and to someone who I felt, you know, could could offer more help, who had had more research and, um, excuse me, had done more research and a tremendous amount of investigations into things like poltergeist activity and encounters with, I guess, in simple terms, otherworldly beings, but not from an extraterrestrial perspective. And I think ultimately, you know, they actually felt better dealing with somebody like that rather than they actually had one, I won't say a bad experience, but like an unfortunate experience unfortunate experience apparently with a mainstream abduction researcher i truthfully don't know who this was the person was kind of quite couched in what they were saying but um the the basic story i got was that they were pretty they didn't particularly enjoy the fact that the researcher whoever it was was trying to push them down one path and say well you know maybe the poltergeist activity was just you know your imagination or unconnected in other words they were trying to distance this more fourteen aspect away from you know the, the literal abduction side of the story, and you know this is what I you know to go back to your point about me investigating abductions. I don't really do too much like that, but I I do prefer to you know pass the stories on, forward them on to people I think can actually help the person rather than just uphold the you know the belief system of the person I'm referring them to or whatever. Oh, this is great, and and actually, this is uh, one of my questions that I wrote down, and I kind of knew you were going to give that answer, and and what I want to say is that in you know you, then you, having just said that, you are you know an excellent person to look into the to the more outlying data points because you know you you've already established that you're not in that box. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. here I'm going to also share a little story. This is a story that was uh, given to me by um, someone I trust. And who I've talked to a few times on the phone, and I also did an interview with her. She goes by the name of uh, Lucretia Hart, and she's writing in her own uh, online blog uh, about her own set of experiences, which are very intense uh, abduction experiences with all the uh, outlying, crazy, uh, hard-to-quantify data. And she tells a story of... Um, so she's had both interactions with the Greys, you know mm-hmm. these short little you know characters with the great big heads and the inky black eyes, and as well as she's had interactions with uh, tall, beautiful blonde Nordic characters, and one of the stories she says and she kind of hypothesizes and kind of speculates on her own is that the the greys when they appear in her house will just magically you know walk through the walls they'll just appear out of nowhere in the house, and it's very distressing and she has a thought that when they do that, you know, whatever, whether it's technology that's being used to do that or whether it's um, 
I'm just going to say use the term magic for lack of a better word, that somehow they open up some sort of doorway or some sort of portal you know, right in the house. And she mm-hmm. says after those experiences, her and her husband will have follow-up poltergeist activity, you know, mm-hmm. classic straight-up poltergeist activity. And she's, uh, then she says that the Nordics, the nice blondes, who are, you know, angelic and loving, you know, magnificent in every way, but they will instead land a craft, you know, mm-hmm. some distance away from the house. They will come to the house, uh, you know, sometimes literally knock on the door and then invite them out to the craft away from the house. I, I know all this sounds absolutely the stuff of, of fantasy or science fiction, but I'm just retelling what she's told me. And her speculation is that the Nordics are doing this on purpose as a courtesy so that they don't open up a doorway in the house. In essence, when this technology is used, you know, some sort of, uh, oh, I, I want to say like magical properties are used to open up this portal where the little greys can walk in and out or the, or some sort of portal opens up so that the classic flying saucer can land nearby. What happens is it just it just allows other phenomena to rush in, and one of those phenomena would be poltergeist activity. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a highly intriguing theory. For me, the, the tragedy is that while we can talk about this right now, a lot of people won't touch it, you know, and and it, and it could answer, you know, it, it would still even, ironically, allow for, you know, possibly a genuine ETH angle. But what I've found time and again is, you know, these stories, these accounts, I'm sure are highly valid, you know, before you even mentioned this you know i didn't know anything about it but you know i related a, a very similar account of of poltergeist activity in association with with ufo activity so you know the woman has an interesting theory and she was able to relate it to you but you know i know for a fact that there are people in the field who wouldn't be when the when the word poltergeist came up they just wouldn't deal with it you know and i think i think what what this says is actually far less about the will to investigate and far more about the, the relevant investigator building up their reputation as the nuts and bolts guy or whatever, you know, and, uh, and it becomes, it becomes like a career almost, which is sort of rigidly formatted into one particular realm. You know, I'm the person who investigates this. He's the person who does that. She's the person who does this. And very often it doesn't allow any room for, you know, moving around and, and addressing other ideas because they've painted themselves into this corner and they're comfortable in it. They come to a belief system and they, they're happy staying there. And, it, and in other words, you know, it, it parallels, it, it's, a, it's a parallel to a, like a religion. You know, it doesn't become an open-minded investigation. It becomes a means to uphold a preconceived belief system, basically. Yeah, and, and it just seems that some there there might be a need for someone on the outside to study the UFO community, and then the community is such yeah. a funny word because you know, there's hardly any community at all. But um, you know, and that that you know that person would need to be like a sociologist to really look at the at the at the you know flaws of human nature when it comes yeah. to looking at this stuff. No, I agree with you. I think that I mean, if somebody were to write a book, I mean. You know, I think the closest thing for me that gives a really good insight um, into the community, although granted it's not so much from today's community, but through no fault of the author, is Jim Mosley shockingly close to the truth. Because it talks about, you know, the phenomenon, 
but also it gives a great deal of very interesting and entertaining and thought-provoking background on on the people in the field as well. Um, and, you know, I think if... I wouldn't say more research needs to be done in that area, but if the, sort of a, a significant amount of research was done, you know, to to study the people in the phenomenon, all of us, you know, I think we would gather a great deal more data, insight, and have a better appreciation of how and why different theories have developed over time. You know, I mean, it really is an article of faith that UFOs are piloted by aliens. You know, it's like I always say to people, the U in UFO still stands for unidentified. The, the idea that it's pilot means extraterrestrials is just a hypothesis. Um, but when you have a hypothesis that is accepted as fact, that's when problems start. And, you know, from my perspective, I, what I, I want the answer but as to what's going on, but I don't have a need or a care for it to be this answer or that answer. I just want the answer. <laughs> I just got back from uh, what used to be the Laughlin Conference and just took oh, place yeah. in Arizona. And I spent, you know, whatever, five days there. And it is very interesting to see, like, Stanton Freeman uh, sitting behind a desk with selling his books, sitting right next to Kim Carlsberg, you know, someone who Mm. has had, you know, intense abduction experiences and claims to have channeled and has, you know, the missing baby syndrome and all these things that are are sort of almost verboten in some circles. And, Mm. uh, you know, just to see them sitting side by side sort of hits you in the face with the, you know, how the the outright Mm. conflict in some of these characters. Well... Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that what I found is that while the... I mean, this this is going to hit on basically what you've just said now, but um, what I found is that although a lot of UFO researchers, writers, authors, etc., are very much inclined not to sort of um, go outside of the rigid confines of the ETH when they're already in it, what I found is that audiences and people interested actually are quite receptive. I mean, I'll give you an, a perfect example. You may not know this, but last summer, last July, I gave a lecture at the annual MUFON conference in Denver, Colorado, and my lecture was on crop circles. But it wasn't, you know, a lecture saying that, oh, well, crop circles are made by aliens, you know, beaming down you know, sound acoustic weaponry or microwave weaponry to make the formations. What the lecture was on was the way in which the the so-called hoaxers, as they're named, as they're known within ufology, you know, which is a, probably the worst term you can give them. Many of them consider themselves like landscape artists. A number of them actually feel channeled to make the formations that they create, and they've had actually had experiences, like paranormal experiences, in the formations of their own making. Uh, one of the people I talked about was a friend of mine named Matthew Williams, who has had little balls of light flying over the formations as he's been making them and had missing time in a crop circle and actually feels that some sort of higher force is guiding these people like him to make the formations. Now, of course, ufology doesn't want to hear that, but that's what I spoke about at the lecture. And although there were certain ufologists at the conference who outright outright frowned on that theory and said I was dabbling in, like, witchcraft, essentially, the audience was very receptive to it. And I, th- I find that interesting in the sense that it's like the, the UFO research community, much of it wants to uphold the ETH. But when you go out and you speak to the people attending the conferences, they're far more open-minded, which I find not so much ironic. I find it very interesting. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's just human nature that we get into our little boxes. And I and I certainly recognize that I'm in my little box sometimes. There's some stuff that I am very very cautious to. You know, it's almost scary to go down the road. I mean, I've just talked to so many people who have like a, you know what amount of frightening. Oh, the combination of of uh, you know UFO phenomena and then frightening government interaction in their lives. Mm. Um, well, you know, yeah, but I think you know the important thing is though you're willing to to talk to the people, address it, and you know pretend if the people want the story published, or you know you can share it like we're talking about it now. You know, I know certain researchers who, when they get these reports and they go in the file, they don't get talked about again. You know, because it's perceived as being just too weird and, and it doesn't fit the comfortable um, scenario that they've, they've sort of established over 10, 20, 30 years. Now, you know, I mean, I think most people in the field who uphold the ETH come hell or high water do so because they really do believe that theory. But there are some, you know, who, who view it from the perspective of, well, this is a career, this is a job. You know, I'm booked for 15 conferences this year and, and there's potentially another seven or eight next year and this particular TV channel wants me to talk about this or that. And, you know, it, it becomes one of these situations where they uphold the, scenario, the ETH because it's good for business. You know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound cynical because I don't want to sort of tar everybody with the same brush. And I don't actually think, before anybody misquotes me who might be listening to this later, um, I don't think that accounts for the vast majority. But I do think there are a small body of people in the field who are actually some of the more significant players as well, for whom the whole thing is perceived as, as a business. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong, you know, with making money from the UFO scene. You know, if you're going to write books and give lectures, um, you know, you're not at home working. You have, to, you have to earn money. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think when, you know, somebody is thinking with the mindset, well, if I give a lecture on this particular subject saying, you know, that dead aliens are stored at Area 51, that's going to bring a lot of punters in. To me, that's the wrong approach. You know, that's totally wrong. Um, you know, you should speak about whatever you want to speak about. If it, you know, if my books sell 50 copies, 500 or 5,000, well, that's, that's how it goes, you know, but I'm not, you know, if I was going to, if my goal, you know, was to bring in the punters, I would hardly have written Body Snatchers in the Desert, which, you know, sort of posited a down-to-earth explanation for Roswell. You know, my approach is to get information out there, no matter where it leads. You know, if it leads in this direction or that direction, you know, that should be, the main thrust of what we're doing. It shouldn't be along the lines of, oh, well, you know, if I write a good pot boil on Area 51, you know, it's going to sell 50,000 copies. You know, I have no time for people who do that sort of approach at all. Hey, um, there's something just about uh, one of the things I've noticed online uh, since your book, Final Events, you know, I'll see oh, on message boards and, and uh, you know, written comments and in, in other people's writings that Nick Redfern believes that demonic entities are responsible for the UFO phenomena. Mm. And, and, and I've seen that more than once. Uh, that's not what I came away with from that book. No, I mean, Final Events, you know, it's probably, it's probably the most or equally as controversial as Body Snatchers, you know, because it presents a scenario that for significant cases and much of ufology, 
you know, sort of turns things on its head. And final events, for people who aren't aware of it, looks at um, a think tank group within the U.S. government that concluded that, yes, UFOs are real, but they have literal demonic origins. And when I say literal demonic, I mean according to, the, to Christian teachings. Um, and this story, I was actually put onto it by a man named Ray Boucher, who met, met several members of the group in 1991. Ray was a former state director for, for MUFON and had this meeting with a couple of guys from this particular project who said, you know, they'd interacted with these entities, presuming them to be extraterrestrial. Uh, it was never actually made clear if they actually had personal um, sort of manifestations of the greys or if it was almost like a channeling thing. I think it was something along that sort of like a remote viewing type situation of trying to contact these entities. But they said like a black cloud came over the project and there was ill health and sickness and deaths and, you know, just almost like somebody walking into a, you know, like a haunted house and picking up the bad vibes, that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, that was the thrust of the story, that they came to conclude that the ufological phenomenon was deceptive, which on that sense, I actually do believe I do agree with them on that. I do think that the phenomenon is deceptive, manipulative, and actually almost, you know, changes its appearance or, you know, its modus operandi to reflect the people of the, the period in time. But what I did with the book, I've actually pointed this out in the book, in the pages of the book, and have specifically said this on every radio show I've done for the book, that what I did with, the, with this story was to present the story of the group and how and why I was put in touch with them after getting in touch with Ray Boucher, and how and why they came to their conclusions, and, and how and why they developed, you know. And, and that, that was the story. It wasn't a case of me, you know, sort of banging on the table and saying, everybody needs to sort of run to the church because the demons are invading under the guise of aliens. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was a case of, here's the story. This is the history of the group. And I'm putting it out for you to see, but it's the, it's the theories and conclusions of the group, not mine. You know, when you spell that out in the book, and then you have somebody say, oh, well, Nick Redfern's changed his views, and he now believes demons from hell are, you know, invading, etc. It's kind of like, you know, well, why do you bother? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like the people just, certain factions just don't, just don't realize what, what it is you're trying to say when you spell it out. Now, as I said, I do agree with the scenario in several respects one being as i said i think it's manipulative it's deceptive and not necessarily always from a sinister perspective maybe it's sort of teaching us maybe it's like a trickster angle who knows but i, I do agree with them on that fact and it's that it's probably not extraterrestrial um but for me you know having a rigid con coming to a rigid conclusion that this is all specifically demonic relative to christianity is no different from saying it's aliens from Zeta Reticuli. You know, I think any group, inside government, a think tank type group, or outside government, you know, in the, in the public, should have an open mind. And what I see here is, is a rigidly belief-driven mind of this particular group, which, yes, it's a totally different theory to the UFO research community, for the most part, although there are people, obviously, within ufology who also believe this particular angle. But it's such a rigid angle. That's the problem. It doesn't allow for any flexibility. Um, and certainly this group, which nicknamed itself the Collins Elite, they don't allow for or didn't allow for any sort of flexibility in the theory that 
it was demonic according to Christian teachings. You know, it was, no, there's just this one religion, there's nothing else, and, and so this is the answer. And after, after a while, they came round to the perspective that um, almost, you know, if it fitted into the story, that was fine, and if it didn't, and it went in a different direction, well, those people who were supporting that other direction were wrong, you know, and, and, and although they believed they were earnestly looking for answers, the irony is they're no different to somebody who, you know, again, come hell or high water, upholds, I don't know, the Rendlesham Forest case as being extraterrestrial or McMinnville being extraterrestrial. You know, it's, it all comes down to belief, regardless of whether you're in government or not. The trick is to what extent you become dominated by that belief or you simply have an open mind and, and you question it. And, and I think that's, that's the important difference, if you like. Yeah, it's interesting because I've actually, in a funny way, been on the receiving end of, I, I, uh, I've heard other or found other comments about me where, you know, they, they will say, you know, Mike Cleland is a, a abductee. And, and like, I'm very cautious never to say that because I just, I simply don't have the personal experience to, to go down that road. I just, it's just mm-hmm. not in the, in my set of experiences. Um, something very strange is going on. And then I feel strongly that it's, it's somehow related to the UFO phenomena, but I can't really say much more than that. It, honestly, I can't say much more than that. I, you know, we can speculate and say that the puzzle pieces fit together in a way where you can kind of read between the lines. So, you know, so I've been at the receiving end of people, uh, how to say it, you know, filling in my dot to dot, uh, mm-hmm. images in a way that, you know, that I choose not to fill them in. So, yeah. um, well, I can give you a classic example of how that happened to me as well. About eight years ago, yeah, now, if I just sort of backtrack first, you know, one of the staple parts of many abduction stories, you know, the person's lying in bed, they're not able to move, and they suddenly feel this presence, and suddenly, you know, there are like three greys in the corner sort of standing, staring ominously at them. Uh, and then the abduction begins. Well, you know, I don't have any conscious or unconscious recollections of ever being abducted, but I did have like a classic sleep paralysis encounter about eight years ago when me and my wife were living just outside of Houston. And, and it was a, a really weird experience. We lived in a duplex at the time, and so the house itself, obviously split into two being a duplex, um, there was like a corridor running all the way down the length of the house, and all the rooms were on the other side of the corridor. So the corridor was like 30 feet long, maybe more, 40 feet long probably, and then there was like the living room, the kitchen, the two bedrooms and the bathroom, all off the one corridor and I remember laying in bed you know sleeping and had sort of very I won't say dream but you know people who've had sleep paralysis know the difference between a dream and a far more significant altered state if you like um, and the scenario was that I was you know I was in bed could not move you know and and there was something threatening coming towards the the bedroom and the, the imagery that I had was of like a, probably about a seven foot tall cloaked figure, like a black cloak with a hood and, and a wolf's face. Like a, in the best way I can describe it in simplistic terms would be like a werewolf. Um, and, and it was uttering like a, like a fast, rapid growl. But the best way I can describe it would be if you could, it's hard, it's hard to explain, but the best way I can describe it is if you imagine a growl, a fast, constant growl but you could recognize that it wasn't just random growls it was almost like a language 
even though you couldn't understand the language, you knew there were certain inflections and whatever that it was that it was speaking words in its own terms, if you like. And it was obviously hostile, you know. And I had this, I could feel it sort of coming down this long corridor, coming to the bedroom, and you know, making this sort of strong effort to try and wake up, and which I did, and then it was gone. You know, that, that's that's a classic sleep paralysis experience, and I probably had three or four like that in my entire lifetime. That one was certainly the most vivid, but, you know, it had nothing whatsoever to do with greys or long-haired, you know, space brothers, but the the key components were very similar, you know, something coming into the bedroom, the paralysis, and interacting with some sort of non-human entity. Now, you know, that this, you know, when we got back to what you were just saying about do you consider yourself an abductee? You say, no, you know, I don't consider myself an abductee, but there are researchers out there who might well say, oh, well, you know, that werewolf imagery was actually a cover that the aliens planted in your mind to hide what really happened, you know, and you're actually abducted. But my view is, why, why does it have to be a cover story? Why can it not be the case that when people in ufology, or abductees, I should say, report this sleep paralysis, and I do and other people do, but it's wildly different entities that appear. My view is that we should be looking at not necessarily extraterrestrials, but a phenomenon that perhaps can manifest in different ways rather than a whole sort of menagerie of different things all by chance having the same effect on people, you know, the paralysis, the, the feeling of threat, etc. You know, why, why should it be a whole range of different things, or why should the research community deny certain aspects, you know, of this research? My view is that clearly something's going on, but when people are seeing werewolves or hooded figures or, you know, who knows what, and the symptoms of the experience mirror those in certain abduction cases, I think that is something else that, you know, suggests people shouldn't be labelled as abductees, you know, they should be labelled as, as people who are experiencing something very, very strange, which for them may have manifested in the form of aliens, but for somebody else manifested as something else, you know, and, and the big question is why, you know, instead of trying to label them as all suffering from missing time by manipulative aliens or whatever. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's, it's the, you know, the dawn of the 21st century now, and that type of experience, there would be like a, a researcher into a sleep paralysis who would chalk it up to, you know, very dry physiological things taking place in the brain chemistry um, at a certain point in your in your sleep cycle and then um, you know if we turn the clock back a few hundred years that same story you know could have very much gotten you you know burned at the stake in some some village in Europe and then if you turn the you know the clock back even longer or just change the location you know you could have easily been anointed village shaman um, if you yeah. shared that experience so I don't know what it means now but um, that has the potential to be a very profound Mm -hmm. uh, experience that could that would alter your set of perceptions, and I almost think that that, that might even be the reason that that we have those experiences. I think yeah. there's a need for us to have you know to to get shaken up a little bit and to have our perceptions of reality jostled a little bit. I think it's an important human experience. No, I, I agree with you, and again, you know, I think this comes down to certain things that I've concluded that whatever this phenomenon is. Sometimes it's like what you get from it is what you put into it or what you don't put into it. You know, it's like 
why do some people who enter the UFO field, not just witnesses but researchers, you know, begin to experience like a lot of synchronicities or weird events, which almost seem manipulative, and I don't necessarily, again, mean that in a sinister perspective, but almost like something's pulling our strings. Now, you know, you can argue, as I do, that there's an aspect to the whole UFO phenomenon, which is like a teaching aspect. And I think that if you embrace whatever it is that's going on and you listen to it, you know, I don't necessarily mean physically, literally listen to it, but you, you're open to it. I think it actually realizes somehow this phenomenon knows when people are addressing it or are looking into it. And it's almost like then it latches onto the person and depending on how you react to it and deal with it, that has an equal reaction on, on how it manifests and in what way. You know, it's kind of like the whole trickster element. I mean, you can look throughout the, whole, the entire history of the human race and find stories of whether it's angels and demons, jinns, you know, space brothers. There's always, or often, I should say, a trickster element. And that trickster element is sometimes benevolent. It sometimes, you know, just plays tricks and jokes. And other times it can be downright malevolent, you know. And I think... We could be looking at entities that, in simplistic terms, you know, view the human race as, I won't say they're plaything, but, you know, well, let's, it's almost like, yes, it's a learning process, it's a school or something like that, but equally, you know, they're, they're not above whatever they are. They're not above screwing with us at times or helping us. And, you know, it's, I think it's an, an extremely intricate area but i think there is some sort of learning process but it's coupled with a trickster phenomenon as well um and we don't necessarily always see the big picture of what's going on except for that except for the fact that sometimes it seems helpful for other people it's downright terrifying and you know i think again the big question is why that should be the case um and again i think part of it is what you put into it or how you're willing to look at it maybe has an effect on the way in which it, you know, it interacts with us even possibly. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. That's exactly uh, conclusions I've you know, been, been coming to. And the only way I can describe it is there's a side to it that is intensely and deeply personal. It seems to mm. be directed at the individual, and it seems to be directed in a way that... Um, how to say it, you know, almost like the, the visual imagery or the mythic icons that emerge are specifically tailored to that one individual in a way that uh, uh, it, it makes it impossible for me to say that, you know, well, not impossible, but it makes it very difficult for me to say that this is being manifested by little scientists in a metal spaceship. And, you, yeah. you know, you use the term synchronicity, which you 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 know I have a list of questions here, and that's one of the things on my on my list here. Um, uh, more than anything, that is how it has been manifesting with me is mm -hmm. through very bizarre and intense synchronicities. You know, a lot of people have written about synchronicities. That's one of the questions I always ask people who claim the abduction phenomena. You know, it's like you know in the yeah. back and forth, and I, and I'm not I don't call myself a researcher in the sense that you know I'm like I'm not an objective observer mm -hmm. um, I'm very very much influenced by by these events and, and I take it very personally so um, I'm non-objective 
in a very strong way. When I ask folks, you know, have you had uh, any exp- you know, synchronicity experiences in their mm-hmm. lives? I mean, they literally like kind of like start laughing and kind of say like, "Are you kidding? It's it's out of hand. It's over the top. Mm-hmm. It's it's absurd." You know how, what the type mm-hmm. of synchronicities I've been having, and for some reason, I also sense, and this is completely anecdotal. I don't have any chart over the decades to, to prove this, mm-hmm. but it seems to be increasing in the recent years. Yeah, I would actually agree with you on that. I mean, I've had a over the you know a huge amount of synchronicities where it's quite clear to me that something very bizarre is going on. I think the trick with synchronicities, the most important thing of all, is not to ignore them. Is to you may not necessarily know how to act on them, but you know they're they're telling us something. I, I think synchronicities are almost like a like a like a signpost that you're going in the right direction, or they're a signpost to help put you in the right direction, you know, or give you pieces of the jigsaw that you're not really seeing. And I mean, one of the interesting things is for me, and I don't mind admitting this, that you know, I, I wrote a book in 2009, Contactees, about the whole contactee movement. I've actually had a, very, a lot of very weird synchronicities relative to the to the contactee issue. Often when I'm, when I'm trying to find more information on certain cases and things like this or I'm writing about them, just something very weird will happen. Now, you know, again, is it sort of some trickster element playing with us? Is it something that in its own sort of ethereal way is saying, hey, you're on the right track, here's a bit more, and go and find the evidence for yourself, you know, rather than doing all the work for us? Or is it a case of, you know, we're thinking about it so intensely that there's something out there that then realizes we're looking and then that's why it happens. You know, it's difficult to explain to people, I think, who haven't had synchronicities and just chalk them up to, oh, just a weird coincidence that happens now and again. But, you know, when it happens regularly, and sometimes, you know, mine have come in cycles where, you know, nothing will happen for a few weeks or whatever. And then three or four things might happen over the course of 48 hours or whatever that, you know, you just realize that this cannot be down to random chance. But even I'll admit the, first, the big question is, you know, what provokes this and what is the reasoning behind it? You know, I think they're all important issues that we need to grasp and, and grapple with. And the worst thing we can do is ignore them and just write them off as just random events. Uh, you said that much better than I could. Uh, you're saying you're sharing exactly my experience in many ways. Um, when I, in about 2005, 2006, um, actually more 2006, I had not looked into my own set of life experiences at all. And the actual act of of sort of going down the path and saying, you know, like, well, I've had these odd life experiences, and and I've read all these UFO books, and and something's up, and and I was very much in a state of denial. And the actual act of looking into it. I am not exaggerating. It felt like the floodgates opened and the, the, mm-hmm. the synchronicities just came so fast and furious. And mm-hmm. initially, and I'm thinking 2008, 2007, you know, I want to be careful how I describe myself, but I was sort of at the tipping point of madness at a certain point where I, where I was seeing these things as such a profound, you know, like I wanted, like, you know, the, you know, the definition of the universe was, was just about to be unveiled to me through these magical mm-hmm. synchronicities. I've calmed down a little bit uh, <laughs> since then, and I realized that, you know, very much the same thing that you just said is that they are, um, 
you know, one way to look at them and that I've found is that they're threads. They're threads that are introducing themselves, and, and you have to grab that thread and pull on it. And it, it oftentimes won't be a profound thing at the end of that thread, you know, if you follow it, but it may lead to one more a clue. And, yeah. and I also think that, you know, like it's a, it's a way that if you're on the path, the synchronicity isn't um, doing much more than just nudging you a little bit and just keeping you aligned yeah. on that path. Or if there's a fork in the path, uh, a synchronicity may tell you to turn right or left. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I view synchronicities from a positive perspective. I think that the very fact that they occur in the first place is intriguing, but that they should occur in relation to things particularly when we're inquiring and searching for information. I think that's an important issue. You know, I don't really get synchronicities that have, that are just odd, you know, or that seem beyond coincidence. It seems to be chiefly when I'm trying to further the, you know, the, the extent of, of our knowledge in different areas. Um, or maybe I've hit a, you know, a literal uh, you know, fork in the road sort of thing, or even, you know, like a, the classic um, locked door, you know, to the vault. Um, how can you get past this? And then something happens that gives you a bit of insight or a new contact. So I think that's an important thing, that synchronicities, for me at least, don't occur just at random. It always seems to be when I'm sort of chasing down something, which I think will enlighten us further. Um, and so that's why I view it from a positive perspective, that whatever the nature of what's going on, there is something that is has the ability to know when we to, to deal with us on an intensely personal level, if you like, and and in a positive fashion. But it does so in a way that, you know, it, it's not like providing all the answers on a plate in the same way. You know, the, the analogy I kind of use is, you know, it's like the mother bird, if the mother bird doesn't sort of gently nudge the baby birds out of the nest, they're never going to learn and live on their own, and they're probably going to get eaten by a cat one day, you know. But if the mother bird doesn't, you know, doesn't solve all their problems, but actually teaches them a few things, you know, stay away from those animals that meow with the long tails, etc., and the claws, and you'll be okay. But let, they, let the little birds learn for themselves as well. And I kind of think that's what's going on with us, that there's some, whatever it is, I don't know. But when you start getting into these different fields, you start researching it, and you're going down the right path, it lends assistance um, in ways that we don't normally understand. You know, it's not lending assistance like, you know, um, a driving instructor helping you to learn to drive a car, you know, or anything like that. It's almost... Um, almost like a theory or enigmatic help, but if you can, the trick is to understand what the help is and how it's going to help you. And I think when you when you understand that, then you begin to absorb more synchronicities and you get more out of it, and it becomes like a cycle. Then I think. Absolutely, and I've also found that sometimes uh, my own personal synchronicities are so, uh, so wrapped up in my own internal psyche in a way that they're that they're almost difficult to explain to someone else you know the profound experience is mine and mine alone and sometimes they're very interesting and people will go wow that's that's very interesting when i share a story but oftentimes that that when in sharing the story there's the threads are so delicate that connect one thing to another that um it's almost not worth it you know i would just bore them to tears if i tried to explain you know some of the events and synchronistic experiences that I've that I've uh, had 
Hey, here, I'm going to read two little things on my thing. And this is, I cut and pasted these from correspondence from people who had talked to me uh, or, or, or sought me out. These are both people who claim some sort of contact experience. And both of these folks claim contact experience that is well outside, you know, the classic flying saucer in the yard and little gray aliens doing medical experiments. But uh, they both said, and this was the, absolutely no prompting from me um, about synchronicities, and, and the first first person wrote, you know, they, and they put they in quotes, they absolutely communicate contextually through synchronicity. And the mm. other person wrote, synchronicity is the language with which they use to communicate. And, uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and this has been a pattern for me, and I don't know whether, you know, the content of my blog is so much based on synchronicity, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and obviously that would appeal to people with, with similar experiences. So that may be why these folks are, you know, sharing their stories with me. But, uh, and another thing that, that I'm getting a lot is people are sharing stories of owls. Ah, yeah, I saw that, I saw that at your website, yeah. well, your blog, yeah. The, the owl thing with me has been uh, kind of out of <laughs> hand to the point where it's mm-hmm. been a little ridiculous. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's another thing. I just sort of treat owls as nothing more now than uh, like a little sign from the universe to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I can't go much beyond that. Here, I'm just going to share a story, and this is not my own okay. uh, personal story. This is, um, I heard this uh, on another podcast thing where this woman was interviewed, and it was just her talking about this one experience. And then, um, you know, being the person I am, I figured out a way to get a hold of her, and I contacted her, and I talked to her, and I, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I had a long conversation. But here's her story, and I just want to get your, your take on this. Sure. Um, she lives in Canada, and she has a Native American heritage, and uh, a friend of hers had died. And she lives in uh, in Ontario, in the you know has some acreage of woods, and she has mm-hmm. a teepee, and she went out to the teepee at night and and lit a fire and and kind of as a ceremonial part of her own grieving process of her friend dying, mm-hmm. she pounded on a drum for a while. Then she was the way she was sitting in the teepee, she felt something pushing the back of the teepee, like the canvas at her back, mm-hmm. and she was a little perplexed, and she walked outside, and and there were five. Bigfoot standing oh, wow. right next to the teepee. Ah. So she completely freaked. Uh, she, she Actually, what she said is she didn't want to show fear. She ran inside, and then she, she said she pounded the drum as loud as she could uh, in hopes to scare him off. And then she peeked outside, and, the, and then these this family of Bigfoot at night, she could see them. They had moved away, and they were no longer close to the teepee. So she you know, walked to her house, and mm-hmm. when she walked into the house... Her kids were all freaked out because there were what amounted to shadow images or shadow figures, uh, you know, interacting throughout the house. And it really scared the kids. Mm -hmm. So she went to go talk to her husband, who was in the garage, which was separate from the house. So in the act of walking from the house to the garage, she saw a giant triangle-shaped craft hovering above the trees right near the garage. Huh. And she said that the image of the giant triangle craft looked like a, like a hologram that was sort of phasing in and out of reality. And she said it was oh, wow. very low. It felt like it was almost touching the treetops. And, uh, and then she went in and both her husband and herself, you know, saw this, this uh, uh-huh. giant triangular-shaped semi-transparent flittering in and out of, out of uh, focus uh, wow. uh, giant triangle-shaped UFO. Um, huh. So there, I, I'll just – I'll uh, – I would love to get any of your your insights into that story, and I yeah, have to say that the lady seemed completely credible, and mm-hmm. and she seemed absolutely perplexed, and she's not trying to sell anything. And yeah, 
Well, I mean, what I can tell you for certain is that, you know, I gave up a long time ago coming to the conclusion that Bigfoot is just, you know, an unknown type of ape that science hasn't classified yet. I mean, I've been interested in cryptozoology, the study of unknown animals, for a long time. When I was about six years old, um, mum and dad took me to Scotland on a week's holiday and we spent a day at Loch Ness. Now, of course, at that age, you know, you're not sort of, you can't really appreciate the complexities of the story, but I remember my dad telling me these, um, the story of the Loch Ness Monster. I actually still have a few vague, fragmentary memories of standing on the shore and, you know, looking out, etc. And I think like UFOs, when you get interested in cryptozoology, like the UFO phenomenon being extraterrestrial, everything's black and white with cryptozoology. You know, Bigfoot's a giant ape, the Loch Ness Monster's a colony of surviving plesiosaurs, etc., etc. Um but the further I kind of got into it, I found, like with UFOs, that the the conventional, if you can call it conventional, theories for these crypto creatures just didn't really stand up to scrutiny in the sense that Bigfoot wasn't just elusive. Bigfoot was almost like too elusive. You know, we, we literally never get a body. You know, we never get definitive hair or DNA samples. And, you know, it, to me, it's just not, even if, you know, people have speculated that, well, Bigfoot bury their dead, which maybe they do, you know, that perhaps they're intelligent species. But what are the chances of us never, ever stumbling across a body or one being dug up by a wild animal and us finding even just partial remains? You know, this just doesn't happen. Bigfoot never gets hit by a car. Or if it does, you know, the, the body always, always mysteriously vanishes and we never have the evidence. And then, of course, you know, there are the parallels where you have Bigfoot-type activity that crosses over into other areas of research, like the case you just mentioned. You know, there are a lot of reports on file where people have seen Bigfoot in conjunction with UFOs. Um, I'll give you a classic example. Uh, we live just outside Dallas, but down by Houston, there's a large area of forest on the east side of Texas called the Big Thicket. Well, there's a road that runs through the Big Thicket called Go well, it's actually called Bragg Road, but it's known locally as Ghost Light Road because for hundreds of years there have been these sort of weird classic ghost lights, balls of light flitting through the woods anywhere from the size of like a tennis ball to a basketball. Very much like the Marfa lights or, you know, intelligently, intelligent plasmas is how some people describe them. But in the same, exact same regions where we get these ghost lights, which by definition are UFOs, there are a lot of Bigfoot activity in this precise same area. You know, and then you get other reports, Bigfoot vanishing in the blink of an eye and footprints just tracks, you know, coming to a complete halt in the snow as if the creatures winked in and out of our existence. And also, you know, me originally coming from England, a lot of people don't realize that Britain has a long history of Bigfoot-type reports, many of a very paranormal nature, but due to the small size of the country, there's no way at all that, you know, a colony of seven-foot eight men could hide out in the British Isles, you know, and not be caught. It's just totally unfeasible. And that is actually borne out by the fact that most of the British reports do fall into paranormal categories in terms of at least, you know, the creatures seeming semi-physical or winking in and out of our reality, etc. So reports like this don't surprise me. Um, you know, the, the Canadian one you're talking about, um, how we explain them, you know, are we looking at creatures that are somehow linked to the UFO phenomenon? Are we seeing evidence of in highly intelligent entities? You know, I think it's just 
probably our way of thinking. We assume if it looks big, tall, hairy and brutish that it's limited in intelligence, etc. You know, whatever these creatures are, they may be highly evolved. And, you know, people speculate on issues like extra dimensions and that, you know, can be explainable via quantum physics. Is it feasible these creatures can sort of negotiate different realms and, and literally, you know, pop in and out of ours? And maybe, you know, that explains some of the UFO phenomenon as well, that perhaps things like portals, doorways, you know, and, and that might explain why there's a connection between UFOs and Bigfoot in the same area, perhaps. You know, that's, and I, I agree completely. I just, I've taught for years in an outdoor school and I spent, uh, you know, 30 days at a time twice a summer. So that was like 60 days a summer in and around um, the North Cascades, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the, the epicenter of the Bigfoot thing. And, and as pristine yeah. and, and remote as some of those areas are, um, I mean, quite honestly, there's logging roads everywhere. And, you, you know, you're not that far from uh, the interstate that runs north of Seattle and you know, my my deep feeling is that, like, no way is there a remnant mm. population of, you know, f- yeah. funny ape men living out there. It is something much stranger. And, and uh, actually, you, oh, oh, go on. I was, actually, I, was gonna say, I was actually out over by Seattle just two weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you know a place called uh, Watertown or Waterstown. Uh, I've heard of the name, um, yeah. Okay, I was doing a conference out there, and um, we actually got to speak with a lot of people there who... Had you, excuse me, had Bigfoot sightings and, and activity, and, and you're right. You know, I think although there is a lot of forest, you know, not far from Seattle, and a lot of these areas are built up with towns. You know, I, I do find it just not feasible that not even one would get shot or you know run over on the road, etc. To Seattle and backwards, etc. Yeah, I live in a place. Um, I live right near Grand Teton National Park, where where they do have mountain lions. Um, uh-huh. They are very elusive and very rare. Uh, but people see them all the time. I talk to people who see yeah. lions all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. People photograph them. People hunt them. People trap them. You know, there's an animal that that is extremely elusive. There's very few of them around, um, but they do show up, and, and it's so yeah. so. Um, yeah. uh, and then, are you familiar with Gian Cassar? Of what? Sorry, there's an author named Gian Cassar. He wrote a book on uh, the Bermuda Triangle. No, I'm not. Okay, he no, was interviewed on Tim Banal's show, and he just recently oh, yeah. wrote a book on um, on Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Um, and he, you know, he's a smart guy. His discussion is very well researched, and you know, he's he's coming from a place of you know a strong amount of research before he makes any of these claims. And um, at one point, uh, Tim Banal said, "So I guess you don't subscribe to the parallel dimension hypothesis about Bigfoot." And without skipping a beat, he basically just went, "Oh no, 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 no." <laughs> So it's very interesting. There are Bigfoot researchers out there that are very much uh, latched onto the fact that, you know, yes, there is a, 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 a creature out there in the mm-hmm. woods, which must be, uh, you know, I can well, see how that would be hard to, I mean, if you have sightings and, and footprints and there is mm-hmm. evidence that it that it falls into the category. But I just think if you step back and just look at the bigger picture, yeah. as, as we both just said, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of these things would show up on on somebody's yeah. radar a little more than just yeah, an elusive sighting in the woods. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it, it's not just human nature, but it's nature in general that, it, it, to me, it's just totally beyond feasibility that, you know, there would never be an accident, a mistake, or, you know, something where even just one, that's all we need. We All we need is a leg, you know, a foot, a big foot. We don't need a full corpse to, to make the argument. But the fact that we get nothing... 
Now, I think, you know, a lot of cryptozoologists, you know, who I'm friends with, you know, we can, have, we can debate and <laughs> unfortunately remain friends. But, you know, the whole idea that we are dealing with paranormal creatures, however you want to term the paranormal, you know, that's the important thing, but creatures that are more or less than flesh and blood does not go down well within mainstream cryptozoology any more than, you know, some of the more esoteric theories go down well in mainstream ufology. And, you know, I think one of the reasons is, like with UFOs, a lot of people in cryptozoology, particularly who have been in it for decades, have invested so much time, effort, and reputations in upholding and supporting the flesh and blood angle that you know, it's, they, they view the idea that it could be anything else as a, as a threat to their credibility uh, in terms of, well, what if our views are wrong? You know, it's like it, it means 40 years of, of work is not necessarily going down the drain, but they've got the origin and the point of origin wrong. Well, you know, that would be true. But on the other hand, it would still be a fascinating scenario if Bigfoot was found to be some sort of either interdimensional creature or just something that even is beyond science right now. You know, it would, people would still by definition exist. It just wouldn't be the mysterious ape that a lot of people assume it to be. And again, as with UFOs, I don't understand that attitude. You know, why it's got to be this? And so what if it's something else? You know? Exactly, exactly. And in a, and in a funny way... Um... Oh, like I, I don't really, I don't really care, you know, what people believe, and I'm more delighted by the fact that there are, oh, long-standing mythologies, you know, that that surround, you know, Indian mythologies, and I suspect, you know, Tibetan mythologies surrounding the Yeti and things that, yeah. uh, and to me, that's where the the fun is, you know, if if these Bigfoot hunters want to go out and put little. Uh, motion sensor detectors on paths in the woods and, you know, more power to them. And maybe they'll come up with some interesting clues that'll, yeah. that'll, you know, either add to the mix or further confuse the, the database. No, I would actually agree with you. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, field research, particularly looking for Bigfoot, is essential. But what I do think is that going looking for it with guns and cameras in a regular sense just does not work. You know, there are countless reports of people saying they shot at Bigfoot or believe they did shoot it, but, you know, we never get that body. Now, what I do think is possibly an interesting area to follow, you know, is, for example, the heat signatures of these creatures. If they're seen, you know, are they reflecting heat uh, in the same way that a regular animal would? Um, there have been indications, a lot of good studies have been done to suggest that Bigfoot, whatever they are, may use infrasound as a weapon. Um, now, it sounds strange, but, you know, the military for a long time has been researching deeply and secretly the whole issue of acoustic weaponry, you know, weaponry that can sort of, I guess, resonate against the human body and, and literally disable you. You know, it's like certain frequencies will, you know, could render you just on your hands and knees vomiting, you know, because it's kind of like being in, in front of a, huge speaker at a rock, a rock concert, but when certain frequencies are achieved, it can have a very adverse effect on the, on the nervous system. And one of the theories is that Bigfoot actually has an innate ability to use infrasound to, to almost like, not so much disable people, but there are a lot of reports where people have been looking for Bigfoot, and even before the creatures appear, 
they have like a feeling of a wave of panic come over them and confusion, nausea, almost as if something, you know, suddenly just hit them, like a psychic attack almost. Um, and these are sort of classic symptoms of infrasound weaponry where you, you know, you feel disabled, nauseated, um, you're not sure what's going on properly, and you just want to get out of the area. And, you know, I think when you, we're talking about field research going out into the woods, maybe this would be an area to try and research, you know, as a, as a test, you know, if people are up for it, go out into an area where these creatures have been seen and just see, you know, if there are any weird physical things going on like that and actually see if they're detectable, you know, that, that's an important thing as well. So I actually do think field research is essential but not from the perspective of literally, you know, setting up traps and tranquilizer guns and that sort of thing. I think from the other perspective of trying to figure out, you know, what sort of signatures we might be able to pick up, technologically speaking, from these creatures. And then maybe as part of your, your little uh, Bigfoot research team, you add a psychic or, or to, to the team yeah. as opposed to adding someone you know, like a sharpshooter with a gun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people... On the other side of the fence, I'm sure when they hear this, they'll be rolling their eyes. But the fact is, what they have, they have not been able to prove their case that Bigfoot's a physical animal. And I think we should have done. You know, it doesn't matter if there's only six or 7,000 of them in the U.S. if they're a physical animal. If it's just a small remnant population that's left, the odds are we should have achieved something physical and successful. And, and the fact is, we haven't. And to me, that, that has to be beyond chance and coincidence that there's something about Bigfoot that prevents us from catching them or killing them and if there's something that prevents us it suggests they're not just regular remnants of some ancient presumed extinct ape like Gigantopithecus or something like that. I have a story that I've shared on the blog here. I spoke about it. I did an interview with uh, Leo Sprinkle and shared the story as well as oh, yeah. I drew some pictures of it and, and uh, so this event took place Oh, what's it? March now. So ten months ago, it would have been May of 2010, and I was down in the in the Four Corners area of the uh, Southwest, and I was in Colorado. I'll make this short, but um, I was in a tent with a friend of mine, and she and I were traveling around. And she has also had a like a rich tradition of paranormal experiences in her life. So uh, in the middle of the night, um, she woke up screaming. I sat up in bed. I screamed in a way that just like I. Uh, I was so scared. And here we were camped on the side of a little road, a little dirt road in an absolutely lovely little forest in southern Colorado in a tent. And for the next, I'm going to say 15 minutes, both of us lay there absolutely awash in a sort of profound fear that, that just goes beyond mm -hmm. mere explanation. Mm -hmm. It was, um, oh. you know, like if it was on a dial, you know, like uh, yeah. you know, I would think, you know, like grizzly bear with its teeth clenched around your neck on a dial would come in about a six and this was like pegged at the 10 you know all the all the things were in the red and we just and there was nothing there was nothing there we didn't hear any noise um uh and both of us were like awash in that that lasted for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then poof both of us immediately fell asleep yeah I mean, that's interesting because you know that, that that is one of the typical symptoms if you like or byproducts that people report in this sort of perceived infrasound areas, the fact that it, this sudden, it overwhelms people for no reason. You know, it can be laughing and chatting, etc. but then the people are suddenly just smacked in the face almost by this 
overwhelming feeling of fear, nausea, and also a sense of they just need to get out of there. You know, they just want to leave the area. And uh, I think, you know, that's, that's an important thing when we're seeing that all across the United States, you know, in terms of people reacting in this fashion to these experiences. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain, but I think, you know, we are we're getting some answers or, you know, we've, we've got interesting theories, which I think are pushing us down the right direction. So. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to jump back a little bit. One of the things that, that struck me about that story that the woman from Canada shared, and I'm planning to do an audio interview with her also. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that struck me is that she was, she was in the act of doing a ritual act. She was mm-hmm. grieving. She was in a teepee. She had built a fire. She was beating a drum as part of a, you know, like a ritual mm-hmm. act. And for some reason, that seems to show up in this realm also. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you hit on an important point because anything, you know, rituals, whether it's rituals, getting yourself into an altered state, you know, psychedelics, all of these things in their own way are somehow connected. And they all involve the mind, not necessarily always radically, but a, a shift in the mind, if you like, or the mindset. Um, and I think there is a great deal to be said, you know, the, the literal idea of opening the doors, you know. Um, and I think ancient man certainly had a far greater understanding of not just the nature of this, but the value of it also. You know, ancient shamans, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, people who've done research into psychedelics, uh, people like Terence McKenna, uh, Rick Strassman with DMT, you you could argue that, you know, this is not too dissimilar from, from people undertaking, you know, rites and rituals and things like this because the mind becomes more receptive and perceptive, I think, to the idea of, of thinking outside the box, you know, and with psychedelics, it, it, your mind, it, 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 you're forced to think outside the box because, you know, the when the drugs take effect. So I think... There's a great deal to be said for the idea that what we see around us looks like a 3D world. I do believe, though, that rituals, rites, psychedelics, things like that, we're not actually hallucinating when people necessarily report bizarre things. It may well be we're getting a glimpse into another reality. The problem may be it's kind of like remote viewing that may, or you know, ESP. Everybody at times, I think has that sort of connection where they think of someone they haven't spoken to for ages and the phone rings. I think our problem is we're not able to control it fully. We don't really know other than a few people. Most of us can only do that at random. Um, and I think that's the problem. But I, And I think also why it's a problem is in relation to the whole angle of, um, you know, portals, doorways, rituals, etc. You have to be of a certain mindset for it to work properly. And, um, you know, if it does work, great. If it doesn't, you know, that's why it's sort of so difficult to resolve some of these things because it's, you know, we've lost something, I think, that the ancients knew about. And I think, you know, when you go back and look at Native American Indian stories about Bigfoot, you know, they clearly recognized this was some sort of spirit creature. And the fact that, you know, they were noted for rituals and things like that, to me, again, there has to be a connection there, I think. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because the term ritual act, you know, I mean, it implies so much. You know, on one level, you would think of like, uh, you know, people dabbling in like, you know, dark occult things. And I know mm-hmm. that in the book um, Final Events, you make the point that the folks researching it at the government end were were dabbling in in such ritual yeah. acts as a way to conjure up issues with the human mind. But uh, I, I also just think of Stephen Greer, you know, someone who I do not have much respect for and, and he's very mm-hmm. troubled by that guy. But he does these night watches where they call down UFOs. And I fully suspect that, you know, they quite probably get some results in the in the yeah. sense that what they're what they're doing is a ritual act. You get a bunch of people together and you know, ask for something, you know, who knows what's going to happen. You might get an answer. Same with prayer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there, there is this tendency where people talk about rites and rituals and dabbling with the occult and praying and things like this. They always place it in their, the context of their own belief system. You know, if you pray and you get a response, well, then, you know, you've got a, and you're a Christian, you've got a response from God. If you put the thought out and you're trying to contact alien entities, you know, a light flashes from the sky and a something beams down to you um you know you 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 go to a seance and you put the thought out you want to contact your dead grandmother and she comes through you know the the big question is the or the the important issue is there's not that much difference between praying to a god and getting a reply or focusing your mind on the skies and getting a response whether through channeling or something in the sky physically um, that shows up and kind of manifests and possibly even interacts with you, or as I said, sitting at a you know a, a table trying to contact somebody who's passed away. They all involve us con- trying to focusing our minds and trying to contact something. Now the big question is, are we contacting a whole range of different things, or is it one thing that is sort of manifesting in certain ways to different people, but but involving one particular thing, and that's possibly to provoke change and also to sort of teach us and, and open our minds. And those who are receptive to aliens, it appears in that form. Those who are more of a religious nature, it appears in that form. You know, and I think, I think that's a possibility when we're dealing with, you know, sort of dabbling in these areas that w- we know we can open doors. We're not really sure how and why it works and what it is is on the other side and and maybe the phenomenon realizes that and you know to an extent toys with us almost yeah very much so and i think of um you know the nature of this phenomenon how it how it has a way of um uh being on one sense so elusive you know it just seems yeah. like it's always just one step out of out of reach you know the photographs are always just a little blurry the the um you know no one really has concrete evidence you know there's interesting evidence out there but very little conclusive evidence yeah. that would would just uh you know slam the door shut on any sort of conjecture and prove something um and i almost think of like orb photos that f- fall into that that thing where where they're they're obviously a majority of the orb photos are dust, but there are some yeah. pretty interesting, you know, things that come out of it that that are, you know, at, at one one end easily dismissed because you know you can dismiss them outright. Of course, it's just dust, you know. You can, and then and then, but in the same sense, there's there's some curious stuff that shows up in, in especially my own set of experiences with orb photos. Mm-hmm. So. No, I, I agree with you, and um, you know, I think it, it's like we were just talking about with the Bigfoot bodies. You know, the, the fact that photographs, like you just pointed out, 
are always kind of blurry or there's something questionable about them. And that, you know, that applies to UFO photographs, crypto photographs, ghost photographs. Um, you know, and again, I don't think that's just down to random chance because, you know, people photograph, you know, random events all the time. If it's like a, an airplane crash or something, there's always somebody who's got a camera or a camcorder, you know, or, or whatever. And so I think for that reason, more than anything else, you know, we, we're dealing with a phenomenon that is, I think, definitively, in some respects, trickster-like in nature. You know, it pulls us in, but not far enough to where we ever kind of understand exactly what it is. But maybe there is an ability to understand it, but the very act of ma maintaining some sort of distance means we have to keep following it and pushing for the answers. And maybe that's, maybe that's the point. You know, it's like if you sit back and want the answers, it's never going to come to you. If you go looking for them, maybe the phenomenon realizes and, and helps you on the way, so to speak. And at the same time, you know, uh, there has a theatrical nature and a deceptive nature. Oh, if you follow the, this is my uh, conjecture in a way, if you follow the clues, it'll expand your, uh, I want to say, expand your consciousness or, you know. But I think that um, one of the things that um, I wish they asked on, uh, like, like a MUFON report, I just wish mm -hmm. they would go back a year later and then talk to every witness and say, you know, how has your spirituality changed? How has your definition of reality changed? How has your, uh, you know, open-mindedness changed um, with yeah. these experiences? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, those are the sort of questions that should be asked. I think the big problem is that a lot of mainstream ufology is focused upon, you know, getting soil samples and analyzing photographs and you know, they, they want to treat the investigation as you would treat somebody who said they saw a burglary, you know, the house next door. Well, you know, uh, are the footprints outside, did the person leave fingerprints, you know, that sort of thing, and, and getting, getting testimony along those sort of lines, which can be sort of scientifically or forensically examined. The problem is with UFOs, and I'm, I just don't understand why most people don't realize this, is that trying to treat a UFO investigation as something along the lines of an investigation of an aircraft crash or, you know, something like that, it just doesn't cut it. You know, we've had 60 years, 64 years since Kenneth Arnold. And, and I think what it comes down to, but I think there's a lot of pomposity in ufology where if you have letters after your name and credentials and you're assigned, you have a scientific background, that somehow adds credibility to doing UFO research. Well, it would if applying regular science to ufology was relevant, but it clearly isn't. You know, in my view, you have more chance of interacting directly with the UFO phenomenon via an altered state than you do if you've got a diploma sitting on your office wall. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, it seems like there's a limit to what the, the, yeah. the physicist or the, the scientist can do. And, um, and you know, maybe that you know, I guess I said this before, what you should do is add your to your investigation team like a primitive shaman yeah. from some native culture or yeah. add a psychic or, you know, that, that yeah. type of thing, an intuitive. Now, that would be a great idea. I mean, you know, I think it would be wonderful if some of the world's leading major, you know, the UFO groups, they actually had an expert in the field of shamanism, in psychedelic drugs, in altered states, in the occult, rituals, Anything like this, I think that would be wonderful. 
you know, I don't say by any means, you know, get rid of people who have, um, you know, have backgrounds in whichever scientific disciplines, but don't just, don't just focus on those, you know, because that we clearly haven't got the answers through following that path. If we applied the alternative uh, disciplines and experts and brought those into the fold as well, and we tried to unify you know, so everybody could kind of share data and interact and there wouldn't be these prejudices of, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a qualified whatever, you know, I'm not going to work with someone who researches effects of psychedelic substances. And it's like, well, well, why not? You know, we clearly don't know what's going on. There's clearly an aspect to it that falls into that group or that category. Let's not deny that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, uh, the, uh, you know, who knows how it's going to change. The, the research is going to change because I, you know, whether it happens, whether it's just a bunch of stodgy old folks and, and the and the change takes place one funeral yeah. at a time, or somebody makes a bold. Uh, and that was what I was sort of hoping with with Mac Tony's book that that you know his bold plea yeah. to the UFO community would get heard. Well, you know, I mean, you, you raise an interesting point because I think probably, I mean, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if the passage of time will change things. But then again, I sometimes wonder if it won't because, you know, it's like, are we just destined to make the same mistakes forever and ever? You know, it's, for example, you can look at, um, say, Victorian-era spiritualism, you know, um, seances, table wrapping, that sort of thing. It may not be as popular today as it was, you know, 100, 120 years ago, but people who go to those types of meetings, kind of still adhere to the same belief systems and the traditions and the way in which, you know, the event has to be carried out. You know, you all join hands around the table, lower the lights, that sort of thing. That hasn't really changed. And the belief systems haven't changed that much. So it could be that ufology goes the same way, that the people who are attracted to it, for the most part, will continue to be those attracted to the ETH. And then there'll be those who are sort of marginalized and seen as a bit weird, <laughs> people like me and you, I guess, um, on the fringes who are always hammering home about this other point, but where the majority say, oh, no, that just couldn't be. And yet the high strangeness continues. Or it may simply be, you know, that the passage of time will mean that new paradigms and ideas will be embraced and the old theories will fall by the wayside because they've proven unfeasible in terms of, of trying to vindicate anything so but i'm just not sure i actually think it could go either way i'm just you know i prefer to say yeah times are, are going to change and you know when the old guard have had their say for 50 years and prove nothing that people will come along and you know and, and get, follow another path it may not it might just really be the case that other people who are so enamored by the eths will follow in their path, you know, and, and I hope that doesn't happen. And if people disagree with me, well, that's fine, but, that, you know, that's just my view. So. Yeah, there's one thing that, that um, it's very new, and I'm very impressed by it, is the ability for people with first-person experiences, and that might be first-person experiences as, as just an armchair researcher going mm-hmm. out and doing their own research, but I have found such, you know, there's a lot of crap, I'll say, too, but, but I found such yeah. a wealth of interesting first-person narratives on the internet mm. and and those narratives are unedited you know they didn't mm. go to bud hopkins first 
tell their story and then Bud Hopkins you know retold the story in an edited format in a book um these people are sharing their stories and oftentimes like real time uh mm-hmm. you know stories where people say uh and I've been collecting these and linking them on my blog where people will say mm-hmm. things like you know I had an experience last night and here's the ramifications yeah. and then you follow that blog over the next few days and then the ramifications are you know like oh I had a follow up phone call and it was very eerie or you know like uh, you know here's yeah. the here's the photograph of the odd mark I got you know that I found this morning yeah. um so these things are are happening real time in a very public forum and I just I just have to think that this very new form of communication, the internet, will have a profound impact on how we we look at data. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting research has been done, you know, with the internet itself, itself, you know, is it, is it some sort of quasi intelligence, you know, is it almost sort of quasi self-aware, you know, and is there something going on here where, you know, we're actually, it's almost like a synchronistic thing, you know, in the same way that the synchronicities, synchronicities pulverize us generally, is it somehow that, you know, we're sort of, we're surfing the internet and we're actually drawn to certain areas or we stumble on something. Is it just because we're surfing the internet or is there something tied in here, you know, that it isn't just random, we actually find something that really ties in with what we're looking for, you know. It's like, is the internet becoming a part of this whole learning process for you know as a result of something else going on rather than just the fact that there's a lot of information on this I, that that is something that i've been trying to wrap my mind around because i feel so strongly that that the internet is um the only way i can describe it is like a carefully and beautifully shuffled deck of tarot cards you know like yeah. like things will appear on the internet in ways that that uh, defy any sort of logic or you know in in in, in a deeply personal way to me i'm just talking my own first hand experiences mm-hmm. you know when you think about it i mean the internet is is like uh it's a it's a cloud intelligence in the sense that there's no mm-hmm. place there's not like one building somewhere in silicon valley where the internet is stored it's everywhere and at the same time there's uh you know how many people are hooked up to wireless internet where imperceptible to us but you know perceptible to the to the computer like you know the, just this cloud of information that's actually in the ether quite literally and then oh, yeah. um you know i i, I won't uh, people who've read my blog would know but i've had which i've written about some experiences which have kind of changed my definition of reality that that directly involved mm. the internet i had a uh, a missing time event in 1974. I'll make this short. You know, people people have heard the story. Me tell the story before, but um, it happened right in my neighborhood. I was 12 years old. I was walking home from a high school football game, and I was in front of a of a friend's house. You know, I had to pass by this friend's house. I was with another person. The other person's name was also Mike, and then we were in front of a, a friend's house, and her name is Cindy. You know, the the there was confusion, and like uh, my friend and I had a very jarring event where he claims to have seen a UFO um, in front of this woman's house. And all I remember is it felt like the sky lit up orange for a second mm-hmm. and then shut off. You know, and this is this is going back over 35 years now, so it's a little bit elusive. Uh, in 2009, I was I had written an essay about this that event. Um, and I was very frightened to post it online because the implications of that essay, you know, missing time, my friend sees a UFO, um, uh, were very disturbing. And I uh, 
you know, I had the whole essay written up. It was written up as like a diary entry. I was going to post it on my blog, which I had just started. At that point, the blog had just been uh, some sort of charming synchronistic stories, which I have a lot of. Um, but I wanted to post this, and, and, I, and I, I literally, it was late at night. My hands were above the keyboard, and I couldn't do it. I, I, I literally had a, uh, like a, uh, just a, a profound feeling of like a weakness or, you know, like I was a coward. And at that mm-hmm. moment I had a little ping on the audio and it was a, um, a friend request from Facebook that came through on my, uh, email account. And oh. it was from the woman, Cindy. I hadn't talked to her huh. in over 35 years, and she chose that second to contact me. Oh, wow. And I would also say that, that I had a one of the things I had on my desktop that I was going to post on the um, blog posting was a uh, Google Earth image of her house where, you know, where she yeah. was living as a 12-year-old girl at the time mm-hmm. with an X on the sidewalk right in front of her house. Huh. Um, and I will also so, – so that, that this story has, like typical of any of these kind of stories, has um, – you know, threads that just stre- seem to stretch everywhere. And um, yeah. all kinds of synchronistic events have taken place with me and Cindy over the last you know, year and a half. Mm. And then I, I have almost the exact same story with the only other witness, the, the, the boy who was with me at the time. He was 12 years old, just like me. We were, you know, in the same uh, junior high school. Mm-hmm. And his name is, you know, also Mike. But I, uh, later that same year in 2009, I... Um, went out into the forest and I am not kidding. I literally prayed. I recorded the, 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 the plea to the universe and said, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at my wits end. I can't take it anymore. I need a sign from the universe that like, you know, that I'm not going crazy and that this is real. And, um, nothing happened. Um, I've had profound dreams in those, those situations where I will record the dream the next morning and it can prove interesting. And, and, um, and I, and I like that kind of thing. I found it very sort of seductive. That's that mm-hmm. kind of, uh, self-research, uh, but nothing mm-hmm. happened. Woke up the next morning, nothing. And then I came back to my house and, um, uh, it was about lunchtime by the time I got back after spending the night out and, uh, I checked my email and when I made the plea into the little voice recorder the night before, I said, and, I, and I'm not even sure if I had a watch, but I said, it's about 10 o'clock and, and I'm making this plea to the universe. And then when I checked my email the following day, when I r- arrived home again, I had a friend request from Facebook from the other fellow, Mike, and it came in at 9.38. And that could have been at the exact second that I was making the plea to the universe. So here's like like this machine, this box on my table that, that was interacting with me um, mm-hmm. in a way that, that, uh, that to me defies any sort of mm. simple explanation. Yeah. Well, I'll give you another example of something very strange, and I don't know if this will interest you. You mentioned Mac Tonis earlier. Well, earlier this week, I, I don't subscribe to UFO updates. You know, it's one of these online discussion lists. I don't subscribe to it, but... Just recently, uh, actually earlier this week, somebody pointed out that um, somebody had linked there an article I'd just recently written for 14 times. I was just curious to see what people thought about it. So what I did, because I don't subscribe to it, I went to the website for UFO updates where all the daily posts are archived immediately. You know, you don't have to be signed up. You can just go and read them. And they're all dated, you know, sort of January through to December. And so for the last week, I've looked, you know, to see what people have to say about the, the article that I wrote. And I think it was on Monday, um, you know, they listed like March the 4th, the 5th, the 6th. On Monday, four posts came through, 
all data from 2005. One of them was actually one of Mac Tony's articles on crashed UFOs and how he thought, is it possible that they might be staged events to try and um, integrate new technology into our society on the part of aliens, you know, making it look like an accident. Um, and for some weird reason, there obviously been a glitch in the system where four posts, one of them being Max from six years ago, had come through and had sort of, ended, <coughs> excuse me, the, the same date, you know, March the 4th or whatever it was. And then and Errol, who's the the, uh, the man who maintains the site, obviously realized what had happened and deleted the post. But it was just weird, you know, because I've seen at your blog how you mentioned things about Mac and how you felt, you know, he was possibly even influencing you in some respects, you know, to, to do your work, etc. And then to suddenly see, of all people, you know, an old post six years ago, posted six years ago, suddenly pop up again as a result of a, a glitch, if you like, and uh, and be on UFO updates this week, you know, and then uh, and to find it, you know, that was just weird. So. Yeah, I, I mean, never check, you know, I don't check UFO updates unless so, like somebody says, you know, I saw you mention there. So I went there, and then of all the times I could go there, Mac's name suddenly pops up where there's a weird glitch and, you know, old posts appear from years earlier. And I, and I think like weird glitch in the system is almost like uh, uh, like a synonym for synchronicity or a synonym for yeah. for I mean coincidence is is a is a is a far too shallow a word for some of the things. Anytime I hear the word coincidence now uh, relating to this stuff, I I pay very close attention. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I think um, you know anything to me in this sort of field that people pass it off as coincidence, you know, you really do have to just look at it further. It may not always be you find something significant, but very often you do. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this has been great. Um, uh, we've been going at it for, uh, I don't know, it'll total up a little, close to two hours, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Any Anything you want to share? Anything we haven't hit on that you feel is relevant? Um, I mean, what what I always say to people, you know, is that, I think it's important that when we're dealing with these phenomena, whatever it is, is to realize, you know, get rid of the ego and realize that a lot of people may think they have the answers, but they don't. What they have is a lot of data. And what they've done is to incorporate that data and try and refine it into a belief system. Now, whether they've done it deliberately, consciously, unconsciously or subconsciously, that is what's happened. And I think we need to, we need to just dump belief systems and focus on the evidence, the witness testimony. I mean, the witnesses are, you know, arguably the most important people in this subject. You know, those of us that chronicle it, we have our role to play, but without the experiences of the people, you know, we've got nothing to say. So, you know, I think we need to focus on what the witnesses say, and if it doesn't agree with our preconceived beliefs, well, don't hide the evidence, dump your preconceived beliefs. You know, and and do that. It take that approach instead. So you know that that's sort of one of my recommendations to everybody. You know, it's like fil- look at all the information, but don't filter it. You know, and if it doesn't fit into your neatly designed box, well, there's something wrong with your neatly designed box. <laughs> yeah, and and that's part of the reason I go to these conferences in a way is to talk directly with people. And I have to say that some people, um, you know, have such Oh, they'll color their their story, 
mm. with such um you know and i'm thinking of like the the the, the uh, decidedly new age folks they'll color their yeah. story with such flowery imagery that yeah. i'm you know it's very off-putting for me I've, i'm very challenged yeah. by that uh, but at the same time i feel like it's doing a disservice to the entire phenomena yeah. i mean that like the you know the the new agey uh, witnesses and the people who claim to have experiences that are sort of flowery and and don't quite fit, you know, like the the definition that I feel more comfortable with, um, yeah. you know, th- ignoring them is doing a, a disservice to the whole phenomenon. And and yeah, it's you're right. Mm-hmm. And I so I actually seek those folks out and I listen very carefully. And and there are uh, very interesting patterns. And whether it's just human nature that that people get confronted with the. Uh, the profound, and then they mm. they paint it with those colors. Uh, you know that may just be a very human reaction that is slightly different than my very human reaction, and um, that doesn't mean that we're on different pages just because we use different vocabulary words. Mm-hmm. No, you're right, and I, I think you know that um, to me, all you know, all the sort of debate we've had today, I think you know it's far more challenging and important than just you know, debating, well, how many bodies do you think were found at Roswell? Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not trying to say I'm any better than any other researcher, because I'm certainly not. But I just, you know, to me, the old paradigms and old cases, they're interesting. But, you know, it's not getting us anywhere, you know, and it's, and even thinking inside the box isn't getting us anywhere. All it's doing is jamming up more and more filing cabinets and more and more reports, (laughs) you know. And, And that's fine, you know. There are people who equate having more and more reports as having more and more evidence that aliens are visiting. Well, they're wrong. They're deluded. All they've got is more and more paperwork and more and more sightings. But that doesn't provide any more answers. And, you know, the the day has to come when people must realize that, you know, lovingly caring for your archives and your files is fine. But it's achieved nothing. It's achieved nothing in terms... It may have provided evidence that something's going on, and in that sense it's important, but it's provided zero in the way of answers. And, you know, answers now, with all the reports we've got, we don't need more reports. We need answers. Yeah, and and uh, uh, and, I, and I sent you a little email, and I think the quote was, I, I write a list of questions here, and I might have to edit this out a little bit. One of the questions or little comments that I had written on my list of topics was, uh, and this is me talking, is that I am so fucking bored with reports of little lights mm-hmm. in the sky. Um, it's a very valid point. I mean, it's like how many more times do we need to know that Mr. Smith saw a blue light last Thursday? You know, big deal. I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate Mr. Smith's report, and it might be of profound significance to him. But in terms of taking the field any further, it does nothing. You know, it's like, and again, with abductions, abduction cases are fascinating, and for the person involved, they can be extremely stressful events. But with the sheer number of reports we've got on file now, we know there's a phenomenon. We know something's going on. We don't need more reports to tell us that. We need to try and interpret and understand what the nature of the experience actually is. And yes, I think there is a need to to collect reports to a degree and to help the the witnesses and comfort them and counsel them even if they need it. But we need also to focus more on trying to understand what's going on, you know, and that's, I think that's one of the problems. A lot of people think if they go out, investigate a sighting, 
They photograph the area where the UFO came down. They photograph the witness pointing to the sky. They draw like a diagram and a map, and etc. But that's a field investigation, and they've advanced the subject. Well, they haven't. You know, I'm, you know, if that sounds harsh, too bad. They have not advanced the, our knowledge of the subject. They've collected another report and taken a few pictures. Um, you know, and uh, I think we have to be a bit cold-hearted about this and realize that if we're going to take it further, you know, that is that approach is just not going to cut it anymore, you know. Yeah, and, and the, the genesis of my blog was initially... Um, uh, do you know Miriam Delicato? She claims, like, a profound contact experience with, you know... Oh, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I met her uh, at the Laughlin Conference in mm-hmm. 2009 you know, talked with her for a long time. And I have to say that uh, I had not looked into my own life experiences in about 2007. I started looking into them and it, it, uh, it, it was absolutely, I almost want to say crippling. Uh, it was so confusing for me. It was like a psychic shock to all of a sudden be confronted mm-hmm. with like this, this evidence. And then the onslaught of, of uh, synchronicities, it was very distressing for me. And mm-hmm. she sat with me and she kind of listened to me patiently as I kind of, you know, rambled on and the way I do. And, and uh, she finally said, you need to start sharing your experiences. And, mm. uh, and I didn't know quite what that meant. And, and then uh, and I came home, and it, it felt like uh, coming home from the conference, I literally got out of my car, walked right in the house, and, and started uh, the blog. And mm. I, I don't want to – I want to be very careful how I color what I say because I could, I could, uh, I could say it in a way that would sound, you know, like a – overly dramatic but it felt mm-hmm. like i was being controlled by an outside mm-hmm. source and i know mm-hmm. that is such a loaded way to say it and i wish mm-hmm. i could back off from that but that feels honest it felt like i was compelled whether it was from a higher self or a future self or my internal self mm-hmm. it felt strange it felt like i was compelled by a, a, an outside uh, source and and I and I'm very shy to say that and I want to make sure to put every little uh, disclaimer in there that I can that I recognize how nutty that sounds, but um, and then this blog itself has been, in a way, my own form of therapy. Like there's no there's I live in a little town. There's no abduction researcher that I can sit down and, yeah. and hash things over with, and this blog format has been my own. Uh, form of therapy and it's been sloppy and messy and, and I'm sure I've come across as nutty at sometimes but uh, this conversation that we just had uh, was completely selfish on my part and it was very self-serving I wanted to hash this stuff out and I and I and I've read enough of your of your work and heard enough of your audio interviews to know that like I needed the I needed your set of insights uh, to help me a few steps further down the path well, well, I appreciate that, Mike. I mean, I think, you know, all of us in our own way, you know, as I said, I think the most important people are the witnesses. You know, a lot of, a lot of UFO researchers need to get off the ego trip that, you know, they're the top dog, that they're on the lecture circuit, on TV, and, you know, they're nothing without the witnesses. The witnesses and the stories and the experiences and their, the, our ability to analyze them, that's some of the most important things. Um, and I think in our own way, you know, we can, all, we can all kind of offer some sort of input. And I think the more alternative input, when we clearly don't really know what's going on, is essential. And I think that's why, you know, you mentioned Mac earlier. I think it was a big tragedy, not because he just died, you know, and that was a tragedy for Mac and obviously, you know, his parents, his family and everybody, friends. But I think the other big tragedy for ufology was that 
Mac was one of these people who was really at the forefront of thinking outside of the sort of rigid confines of ufology that have existed for 60-something years. And, um, you know, granted, we'll never know, but I do think that Mac was someone who he was skillfully able to traverse ufology as much as he was, you know, future technology, futurism, all sorts of things, you know, that potentially would come in or could or should come into play when we're looking at these different phenomena. Um, you know, so I think the witnesses, the ability to think outside of the rigid confines and for us all to be able to interact and, you know, share data and even if we don't always agree on everything, well, you know, well, so what? You know, it's not a big deal if, if it turns out to be this or that, provided we actually get the answers. So. Yeah, well said. Well said. Hey, thanks so much. This has been great. All right, not a problem, Mike. I've enjoyed it. I think we covered a lot of good ground. And, uh, you know, if when you edit it down, there's something you're not clear about and you want another statement to you know, splicing or whatever, just let me know. So no good, problem. good. Hey, and, and, and um, what's, so just give a little uh, update on your recent books, and, and then I know you have a Men in Black book coming out soon. Yeah. Okay, well, late last year, um, Anomalous Books published my final events book, which is the study of this think tank group in the government that concluded UFOs had paranormal origins or even satanic origins from their perspective. Then a couple of months ago, New Page Books put out my, uh, book the NASA conspiracies, which looks at NASA's involvement in a whole wide range of issues like uh, the face on Mars, UFO encounters reported by astronauts, that sort of thing. And in June of this year, I've got a new book again coming out through a new page called The Real Men in Black. And it's I wrote a book about five years ago called On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, which was a study of the whole Men in Black mystery, if you like, as it related to the government angle, you know, the government secretly watching people. But the new book, The Real Men in Black, looks at the, the weirder Men in Black, you know, the sort of pale, uh, sunken-cheeked, wig-wearing, you know, creatures that some people have, have said uh, are aliens themselves, you know, that, that seem to have definitive occult and paranormal overtones to them. Um, it, it, there's only actually one chapter of the book that delves into the government angle, and that's sort of a brief, a brief story. The rest is sort of dealing with, um, you know, sort of the, the stranger aspects, the more menacing aspects of the Men in Black mystery and trying to determine what these entities are, <clears throat> excuse me, where they're from, what they want, uh, what they want from us. Um, and, you know, it, it applies a lot of different theories to it, um, a lot... A lot of things we've discussed today, actually, you know, sort of cross over into the story as well. And that one will be published in June. Good. I would love to talk to you when that comes out. I would also, All right. also going to add that, um, uh, just this is in reference to the NASA book. I don't know if you heard, but there's a new restaurant on the moon. <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. Actually. Yeah, the, the food is great, but there's no atmosphere. Oh dear! <laughs> Sorry. Oh dear, dear, dear! <laughs> I should. I fell for that one. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to. Uh, so, but okay. Well, back to the. Where was I going with this? Uh, the men in black. Oh, and I just wanted to share that the um, uh, the highest rated page, you know, or, or post that I ever had was uh, on the, my blog, which has been going on for two years, where I've poured my guts out. I'd often like to say that into some of these uh, uh, blog mm-hmm. postings. But the highest rated uh, page I've ever had was the interview I did with you on the Final Events book. Oh, well, that's interesting to know. I mean, that book, you know, although a lot of people, 
I actually didn't get a great deal of criticism for it. What I got, a lot of people were quite disturbed by it. Um, you know, it, it was one of these one of these books where I think people found the whole, you know, this angle that the group were talking about, soul factories, about these entities supposedly harvesting and feeding on some sort of poorly defined soul energy was something that really disturbed a lot of people who read the book. Now, you know, whether there's any truth to that or, or whether it was just a group's interpretation based on their belief system, you know, who can say? But, you know, I think that book, I think the reason why it attracted a lot of interest was because most of my books, you know, if I'm writing about cryptozoology, they appeal to the crypto community and the same with UFOs. I think with final events, what happened with that book, it kind of spilled over into other communities such as, you know, ghost hunting, um, the occult, and also, you know, a lot of religious websites picked up on it, particularly websites dealing with, like, end-of-day scenarios, Armageddon, that sort of thing. Uh, I know it got picked up a, a lot there, and I, I think occasionally that happens. You know, when we write books, they, they cross over outside of the confines of whichever audience we assume is going to be reading about it, and I think... You know, I think that happened with final events. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, I have not read the book. I did follow closely the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, your audio interviews on it, um, and I apologize. Well, actually, I couldn't have read it because it wasn't out when I did the interview with you. So, um, <laughs> no, that was that was fine though. You did like a <laughs> an advance in advance of the landing or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much. All right. Well, as I said, if there's any. Questions you need, Mike, and if you're not sure about, just give me a call and uh, I'll be around. So. Good, good, and um, and I and at some point um, in the future, within uh, actually within less than a little over a month, I'll have a book that I wrote that has absolutely nothing to do with UFOs or anything paranormal, <laughs> uh, and I will send you a copy of it. I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's a short little simple book. Oh, great. Right. Well, I'll be happy to do a review of that for you. I've got a reviews blog that gets good hits. So oh, I'll good. Okay, it won't have anything to do with anything, but it is. I teach <laughs> um, uh, a very advanced form of, of ultralight camping um, here oh, okay, in, yeah. in the Teton area, and, uh, um, and I wrote a book uh, on... Uh, uh, and it's very oh, cool. philosophical. It's actually—I'm very proud of it, and it turned out nice. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll get you a copy when that comes off the press. Oh, I'll look forward to that. And oh, and then um, where else was I going to go? Oh, uh, and this doesn't have anything to do with anything, and, and I might not include it in the in the in the interview proper. But um, yeah, so the one thing I remember that struck me when I very first stumbled on your site—you know—it kind of like I scrolled through, and it's you, know, you had other interests, and one of your other interests was uh, Hammer films from the 1960s. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I, I guess growing up in England, you know, from that era when um, you know Hammer films were sort of really the rage. You know, I mean, granted, I didn't sort of start watching them till you know I was sort of like ten, which would be sort of ten, eleven, which would oh, be sort of mid late seventies. Yeah. yeah, but you know that even today, you know, they're they're still highly popular in England. I think because they kind of capture that sort of old world you know, intrigue and menace, you know what I mean? They're and, not and, like and, today's slasher films full of teenagers and whatever. So. Yeah, and it also had, how to say this without sounding like, like a creep or anything like that, but they did, you know, they sort of crossed over from that, you know, like that old haunted house castle, you know, the yeah. spooky events on the moors, and it sort of like coincided exactly when, when uh, like, you know, cinema was allowed to like 
you know, put a lot of cleavage in. So like all the women. Yeah, always, exactly. Oh, nothing wrong with cleavage. <laughs> some very buxom, some very buxom cleavage. British women, like, you know, wearing uh, yeah, you exactly. know, very stylized uh, costumes. So Corsets or whatever. And yeah, yeah. Bursting yeah. out of them. Yeah, exactly. In, in a sort of... <laughs> no, that, that actually made, that was one of Hammer's big trademarks, you know, was the, the blood and gore, but also the girls and whatever. So, yeah. No, it's yeah, a good combination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and, uh, yeah. And, and I think their, their crowning achievement, which is, which is actually now that I think about it, has no uh, buxom women in it. it. has The only woman character in it is kind of a, uh, a mousy secretary, but um, is mm-hmm. um, Quatermass in the Pit, I think is. Oh, yeah, that's a very good film. Yeah, yeah. that is a good one. And when uh, Mac Tony's listed a, a series of ten science fiction movies that influenced him, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I remember like emailing him right away or commenting on his blog, you know, like you don't have Quatermass in the pit, and uh, <laughs> and he was like, I never heard of it, and I was like, oh, good grief. Oh well. So. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. Oh, one one other thing I just wanted to say: if you ever you know do any more writing or books or anything, you don't ever want to you know quote the interview or anything like that. You know, just just feel free to anything I've written at blogs and whatever. You know, just so I'll make sure to yeah anything <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah, the Gospel According to Cleavage by yeah. Nick Redford. <laughs> oh, and then I've also I've emailed you this, but I just want to tell you straight up that um I in the early '80s I uh, went to the same grocery store as Johnny Ramone. Oh, I remember you telling me that was funny. Yeah, that's yeah. Strange. So that was very interesting to see him, and I, and I this is something that uh, that is I delighted. Both Johnny and Joey lived right in the neighborhood, and mm-hmm. uh, they always dressed in their little Ramones outfits. They were never like seen outside the house um, in anything else <laughs> except for their, their their leather jackets and their straight leg blue jeans that were all torn up, and their dopey <laughs> t-shirts. So. Did you get to speak to him ever? Or not? I did speak to Joey a few times, and and uh-huh. uh, and as much as I ever said to um, uh, Johnny, I think was like, "Excuse me" or something like that, as I tried to like you know get into the ice cream aisle or something. So, oh well, at least uh, you know you, you got to see him face. I, I saw him on stage, but never in the supermarket. And that I have to say, that I'm wild. sad to admit that I never saw them on stage, but um, so. Uh-huh. I probably would have followed them around, see what they bought and ate and whatever, <laughs> like some stupid fan, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting. New York City has got like a, like an unwritten rule where that's like you know that's like verboten. You're not allowed to uh, you know, like yeah. you, you, people have their anonymity and and uh... <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Okay. All right. Well, again, thanks for that, Mike. I enjoyed it and um... great. And, and same here. All right. See you later, Mike. Bye, Bye now. Baby, 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 baby,